Section 10 of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Graham Redman. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. Discourse 7 of the Accusations and Accusers under the Emperors, Part 2. Section 8. What Tacitus Means by Instrumenta Regni. Besides the accusers, who were the imperial bloodhounds to hunt men down for words, conjectures, signs, and appearances, by ridiculous pleas, false constructions, and rested laws, the emperors had other pestilent tools called by Tacitus instrumenta regni, the instruments of imperial rule. These were the poisoners and assassins. When there was no room or pretense to accuse a person signal for worth or opulence, or on any account obnoxious, and thence fit to be destroyed, or when it was unsafe to accuse him, recourse was had to a dose or dagger. Such were Publius Sella and Elias the Freedman, they who poisoned Julius Silanus by the appointment of Agrippina. Such was Anicetus, who murdered Nero's mother by the direction of her son. Such was Locusta, who administered the poison to Claudius, a woman famous for many feats in poisoning, and long retained for this talent amongst the implements of court. It was she who prepared this poison as well as that which destroyed young Britannicus. Such was Xenophon, physician to Claudius, one who helped to dispatch his master. Such were they who, by the procurement of Livia, made away the descendants of Augustus. After the assassination of Caligula, in his apartment was found a chest filled with all sorts of poisons so rapid that when they were thrown into the sea they proved baneful to the fish, and numbers were by the tide cast dead upon the shore. Such also were the tribunes and centurions, and even the captain of the Praetorian guards, who, whenever they were ordered to seize and kill, never failed to obey, without any reason but the word of command. Thus Posthumus Agrippa was dispatched by a centurion under Tiberius. Thus Gerulanus the tribune was, at the head of a band of soldiers, by Nero employed to see the execution of Vestinus the consul, a man charged with no guilt. But Nero, who hated and feared him, having neither crime nor accuser against him, and being therefore unable to assume even the false guise of a judge, betook himself to the violence of a tyrant. In truth, the whole body of Praetorian guards were kept by these tyrants as their assassins, to murder for them, or to secure others who did. The Turk, too, has his mutes and poisoners in the seraglio, as well as soldiers to execute his furies secretly or openly. 
Louis the Eleventh entertained other secret ruffians to stab and drown, besides his trusty murderer, the provost Tristan. Queen Catherine and her son, Charles the Ninth, kept an assassin to dispatch privately such men of rank as they could find no other means to destroy, and as dark as the proceedings in the Bastille are kept, it is known what helps have been administered to the miserable prisoners there to get rid of life besides that of nature. Under the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, the trade of poisoning was brought to great perfection, and was suspected with too much appearance to have been part of the politics of some French ministers, as well as the bane of others. Section 9. How much these emperors hated, and how fast they destroyed all great and worthy men. Their dread of every man for any reason. The destruction of every man who was great or good was so common and almost certain in those tragical reigns that Tacitus reckons as a wonder the natural death of Lucius Piso, chief pontiff. Eminent men and eminent merit are the dread of tyrants. That merit and those talents which, during the old republic, would have certainly recommended a man to public favour and public honours, did afterwards expose him as certainly to imperial jealousy and persecution, generally to ruin and death. And those pestilent accusers, instruments of public servitude, the sons of rapine and blood, who were now the men of fashion and favour, and clothed with the spoils of their country, for afflicting and mangling her and devouring her vitals, would have been then treated as public enemies and beasts of prey, and doomed to the pains of murder and treason, with universal consent and abhorrence. Such a barbarous and unnatural inversion of all order, law, and righteousness accompanied the sovereignty of the Caesars. Augustus, reckoned the best and wisest of them, though he affected to love and countenance men of parts and accomplishments, yet limited his favours to such of them as were devoted to flattery and the usurpation. Hence the public honours conferred by him upon Ateus Capito, a new man, one of signal abilities, but a notorious flatterer. Nay, the emperor raised him in opposition to Antistius Labio, one who excelled in the same acquirements, one who never departed from a laudable freedom of speech and spirit, and thence more applauded than the other by the public voice whereas the suppleness and submission of Capito rendered him more acceptable to those who bore rule. The latter, by this merit, gained the dignity of consul. The other, for having too much, was never suffered to rise higher than that of Praetor. How much must the spirit of imperial jealousy increase afterwards? Everything gave these tyrants fear and offence. Was a man nobly born and popular? He withdrew the affections of the people, rivalled the prince, and threatened a civil war. Was he akin to Augustus? 
he had his eye upon the sovereignty. Had he a reputation for arms? He was a living terror to the princes. Was a great man afraid of popularity and lived retired? He gained fame by shunning it and still was an eyesore, and his best fate was to leave his country. But where the exile was a considerable man, the executioner generally followed. Was he virtuous and his life and morals exact? He was another Brutus, and by the purity of his manners upbraided the vicious behaviour of the Emperor. Was a man sad? It was because the administration prospered. Did he indulge himself in gaiety and feasting? It was because the Emperor was ill and his end thought to be near. Was he rich? He was too wealthy for a subject, and great wealth in private hands boded ill to princes. Was he poor? He was thence the more enterprising and desperate. Was he a dull man and unactive? He only put on the guise of stupidity and sloth till he found room for some bloody purpose. Or had he a different character and was a lively and active man? Then it was plain he did not so much as feign a desire of private life and recess, but avowed a bustling republican spirit and to be meddling with the state. Did he live in pomp and magnificence? He studied to overshadow the emperor in seats and grandeur. Was he accomplished in science, a philosopher or master of eloquence, and thence esteemed? The lustre of his fame gave umbrage to the prince. In short, no man could possess any advantage or quality that rendered him acceptable to God or man, a blessing to his country, to his friends, or to himself, but such quality and advantage were sure to awaken the jealousy and vengeance of these tyrants, and procure his doom. Section 10. Reflections upon the spirit of a tyrant. With what wantonness the Roman emperors shed the blood of the Roman people, the blindness of such as assisted the usurpation of Caesar and Augustus. How miserable must be the reflections of a tyrant, if he has any reflections, that numbers must be wretched, for what wretchedness is not produced by tyranny, that he may make a hideous figure unsafe and detested. Every step he takes for his grandeur and security renders him more contemptible or abhorred, and therefore more insecure, and the bloody end of most abundantly shows that numerous guards and armies are so far from securing him that from them his greatest dread accrues. What a curse it is upon a thinking being to consider himself as an obstacle to everything lovely and desirable amongst men, to the virtue, liberty, and happiness of all men, to his own peace and stability, to his own innocence and true glory, that for every chain he puts upon his people he multiplies terrors and contempt upon his own head, and having forfeited their affections, and living in distrust of those whom he ought chiefly to confide in, 
relies for his life upon hirelings, the sons of vice and idleness, or forced from their honest labour to be made so, and often picked out of streets and jails. He dreads every man who is great and brave, and one who fights for him, conquers for him, and saves him, does but expose himself to jealousy, indignity, and martyrdom. His own slaves, spiritless and cowardly, cannot serve him, and a man truly valiant is undone by serving him. The people are apt to admire and magnify military virtue, and thence the tyrant hates and dreads such as have it. Charles V held it a greater honour to be Count of Catalonia than King of the Romans. He had reason. The Catalans were free men and valiant, the Romans poor monk-ridden slaves. But I shall find another place in the course of these observations to discourse more fully of armies and conquests. I shall here only observe with what wantonness these tyrants shed the blood of Roman citizens, citizens whose lives were once so valuable, fenced and secured by laws so numerous, so sacred and strong, lives so precious that nothing against the life and fortune of the meanest Roman could be determined but by the Romans in general, assembled in centuries. These Romans, who, while free, became the masters of mankind, were, by losing their liberty, become daily victims to their own domestic traitors, and miserable traitors they were, to a Claudius, a Caligula, a Nero. By the ancient constitution and laws of Rome, these usurpers were the only persons liable to be put to death without process or form or penalty. See the Lex Valeria in Livy, and Cicero, Pro Domo Sua. Had such as were champions for the exaltation of Caesar and Augustus foreseen what their race and descendants were to suffer under the successors of these usurpers, would it not have quenched their zeal? Would it not have struck them with horror? Had they foreseen their offspring stooping and groaning under a beastly bondage, not to the emperor only, but to his slaves and strumpets, living a precarious life at the mercy of sycophants, under continual terrors of the accusers, or themselves exercising the execrable occupation of such, some endangered by the lustre of their name, some by that of their virtue and capacity, others from that of their wealth, many become pimps, pathics, and parasites to the prince, several upon his authority prostituting their persons and quality upon the public stage, numbers doomed to exile upon desolate rocks and islands, numbers slain outright, their carcasses exposed and denied the privilege of burial, their fortunes seized from their families, and all of them liable to the like tragical fate, their wives withal daily exposed to the lust of the tyrant, and afterwards made the subject of his imperial sport and drollery, even before their injured and blushing husbands, nay, prostituted in the palace as in the public stews, 
and such as passed by invited in to lie with these illustrious ladies as with common harlots for money had the partisans of usurpation foreseen these woeful consequences to their families from it would it not have changed their hearts and their conduct yet what was easier to be foreseen than the fury and ravages of a madman or fool unlimited where chance and not law directed the blind succession as did blind will and not reason the administration but with the heat of party and present impulse cool reflection and foresight are incompatible it scarce ever happens that for future considerations however wise the instant passion however foolish is smothered the adherents of caesar and augustus had an immediate view of greatness and would not disturb so pleasing an imagination by anxious care or fear for things future all the world goes well with those that are well and before men can be brought to believe prophecies of misery they must begin to feel it what a child is man what a name is reason the most frequent use we make of it is to reason ourselves out of it and from it to borrow arms against itself just as we have seen laws quoted to vindicate the subversion of law and the holy gospel of peace and love urged in defence of persecution and enmity section eleven why under such tyrants the senate continued to subsist it may be inquired why tyrants so jealous and precipitate did not abolish the senate and it was once the purpose of caligula as it was afterwards that of nero to have murdered all the senators but in truth it would have been an enterprise of infinite difficulty and danger to have attempted the suppression of that body it is incredible what stubbornness and force there is in established names customs and forms which often are harder to destroy than realities and substances and signs and titles frequently remain when the things signified and denominated by them are gone thus popery has extirpated christianity and is called christianity and evangelical humility and forbearance are preached and extolled in the midst of pride and flames as the popes pretend to derive all power from the gospel which they pervert and suppress so did the other roman tyrants theirs from the senate as if the ancient free state had still subsisted and to have destroyed the senate would have been to have abrogated their own title to sovereignty they must likewise have destroyed the consulship which was still reckoned summum imperium the supreme magistracy with the office of praetor and every office great and small in the state with the title and style of every law of rome and every tribunal of justice there for every law and every office depended upon the senate or upon the senate and people they must have abolished learning history records 
all process and memory, nay, the very military titles and laws of war and negotiation, those about the colonies and provinces, customs and trade, and have introduced absolute oblivion, a new language and a new creation. Now what power, what genius upon earth was equal to such a prodigious design, that of vacating at once regulations and usages so infinitely numerous, so long established, become a great part of the public language, grown, as it were, to the minds and memories of men, and essential to speech and conversation, as well as to business and protection, and then to supply such an immense void with ordinances, offices, terms, and manner of process, so as to answer all the ends of society in so vast an empire. This was not to be done, nor was it needful. They found their account sufficiently in breaking the power and spirit of the Senate, in reducing it to a skeleton and a name, and in exercising under that name all their own violences and exorbitances. The Senate and the people had a venerable sound, and served as a cloak for power when they themselves had none and the Emperor had all. The registering of edicts by the Parliament of Paris is become a matter of form, but without that form the court, as uncontrolled as it is, does not care to execute an edict. The Romans still preserved a veneration for their senate and magistrates, and the same was often found in the armies, insomuch that as late as the reign of Commodus the soldiers were so enraged at the insolence of Perennis, his favourite and minister, for discharging from their military commands such as were patricians and senators, and for placing in their room others of equestrian rank, that they cut him in pieces. Time, however, with the continuance of tyranny, and barbarity its inseparable companion, cancelled by degrees the old names and forms, after the essence had been long cancelled, and introduced a cloud of offices and words, of rumbling sounds and swelling titles, suitable to the genius of absolute rule, and as different from the purity of the old republican language, as are liberty and politeness from grossness and bondage. Section 12. How the unrelenting cruelty of the emperors hastened the dissolution of the empire, the bad reigns of Constantine and Constantius, the good reign of Julian, the indiscreet behaviour of the Christians, continued tyranny, and end of the empire. To resume once more the subject of accusations and the abused law of majesty, they were cankers in the heart of the empire, which at last hastened its dissolution. The emperors, to gratify their own cruelty, were continually wasting the public strength by sacrifices noble and many, and to satiate their avarice or that of their creatures, encouraged endless seizures and confiscations. This crying oppression was by the Emperor Constantine, before mentioned, 
carried higher than any of the pagan emperors had ever carried it. Besides his own rapine, which was merciless and excessive, he glutted his favourites and grandees with the spoil and fortunes of others, as Marcellinus witnesses. His son Constantius followed his example, and was a more consuming tyrant than the father. I have already said something of his character and reign, which was chiefly conducted by inhuman villains whose heads and hands were eternally engaged in the plunder and blood of his people. Such were his counsellors, such his governors of provinces, which were sucked and devoured to the bone, and might say with truth what a noble Dalmatian once told Tiberius, Instead of sending us shepherds to protect our flocks, you send us wolves to devour them. How many governors in all countries have deserved to be hanged before they reached their governments, because they went with design to rob and oppress? These depredations were restrained during the reign of Julian, who had as much capacity, as many virtues and accomplishments, as could well adorn private life or a crown. He was brave, generous, wise, and humane, a hero, a philosopher, a politician, a friend, and father to mankind. It is pity such an amiable character should have any blots. His had two. He was superstitious even to weakness, and had conceived an aversion to the Christians altogether unsuitable to his remarkable candour and equity, an aversion which they themselves improved too much, by a behaviour unworthy of so great a prince, much more unworthy of so meek a religion. They, indeed, treated him with eminent spite and outrage, traduced him, libelled him, and even mobbed him. Nothing could be a sharper satire upon them, for such brutish conduct, than the singular meekness with which he bore it. The truth is, the Christians were then strangely degenerated from the primitive peaceableness and purity, become licentious and turbulent to the last degree, and perpetually instigated by the arrogance and ambition of the bishops, who were come to contend with arms as well as curses for the possession of opulent churches. It was not uncommon with these ambitious men to affront and revile the emperors to their faces, to publish invectives against them, to break the public peace, and to raise frequent tumults and seditions. As they were the most complacent courtiers when pleased, so they were the most implacable incendiaries when disgusted. All this was enough to alarm any prince, and to awaken resentment in the most phlegmatic. Moreover, a great part of the wealth and revenue which used to go towards the public charge, particularly to defend the frontiers against the barbarians, was diverted and appropriated to maintain the grandeur and pomp of the great prelates, sacerdotes specie religionis, fortunas omnes effundebant, as Tacitus says upon another occasion. As some parts of the behaviour of that great prince, one wise and good in most things, but mistaken and even unjust in others, chiefly towards the Christians, 
ought to be censured and condemned, the behaviour of the Christians towards him can never be justified. They insulted him intolerably with all the excesses of bitterness and ill-breeding while he lived, and slandered and blackened him shamefully when dead, as much as some of them basely flattered and extolled other emperors, who, though complacent and liberal to the ecclesiastics, were consuming tyrants. It is the business of truth and of true religion to give even enemies their due, and friends no more than their due. To give Julian his, if we lay aside his religion, I doubt whether we can find upon record one prince that excelled him, or three that equalled him. He is indeed a pattern to princes, in spite of the anger and obloquy of writers, who were apparently animated by a spirit then too common, a spirit altogether narrow, monkish, and vindictive, such a one as the charitable religion of Jesus disclaims and wants not. To his benevolent gospel and precepts I sincerely wish all men to conform, but fewer signs of such conformity, or rather greater signs of the want of it, have I nowhere seen than in the conduct, discourses, and writings of such as have railed at others for their religious sentiments, real or imputed. I wish, too, that a temper so barbarous and anti-Christian had been entirely confined to the days of that emperor, whose administration will forever recommend him to all calm and impartial men as an astonishing example of virtue and parts. The reign of Jovian, whose intention seems to have been honest and good, was but short, and followed by those of Valentinian and Valens, princes exceeding furious, suspicious, and sanguinary. Under them the old accusations, confiscations, and carnage were revived without mercy, and continued thenceforward with few intervals, till the Roman Empire was quite overthrown. The people in every part of it, being quite harassed and consumed, finding no relaxation from oppressors and accusations, no protection from law, no refuge in the clemency of the emperors, grew desperate, and revolted to the Goths, Huns, Vandals, and other invaders. Section 13. The Excellency of a Limited Monarchy, Especially of Our Own. I think it is Machiavel who observes that two or three weak and bad princes succeeding each other are sufficient to ruin a state where they govern by mere will, but it may survive a long succession of foolish princes limited by good laws. Vespasian found three hundred millions of our money wanting to restore the empire to a condition of subsisting. Monarchy, according to Plato, is the best government, or the worst, to which opinion I subscribe, as I do to that of Philip de Comines, that England is the place in the world where the public is most equally administered, and where the people suffer the least violence. We are blessed with that form of government which Tacitus mentions as the most perfect, and thinks the hardest to be framed, 
that happy balance and mixture of interests which comprehends every interest. An English monarch has one advantage which sets him above any arbitrary monarch upon earth. He obliges his subjects by being obliged to them. As he protects them by defending their property and laws, so they, by supporting him, enable him to do it, while they give by choice and not by force, they give cheerfully. Princes who take all themselves and leave nothing to their people to give can never be beloved by their people. If it be true that we hate those whom we have hurt, it is equally true that we are apt to love those whom we have obliged. Hence God is said not only to love doing good, but to love the good that he does. Arbitrary princes would doubtless choose to have the love and affections of their people, were the same to be acquired by furious and unaccountable rule, but this is impossible. Hence dread of their power is all the share they can expect in the hearts of their subjects, and this is a compliment which their subjects pay to things the most hideous and vile to serpents, to mad and wild beasts, to plagues and Satan, to pain and poverty. But even this miserable compliment is not always paid to such princes. They are not always dreaded. When their terrors are become habitual, they cease in a good measure to be terrors. The people grow hardened and desperate. They themselves become scorned, and contempt, the most abject lot in life, becomes the portion of those who possess the highest. When Nero asked Subrius Flavius, one of the conspirators against his life, from what motives he had renounced his allegiance, it was because I abhorred thee, said he. The consul Vestinius too was known to Nero, to despise his vile and unmanly spirit, and in the whole detection of that conspiracy and the punishment of the conspirators, nothing was so signal as the series of contempt poured upon that brutal tyrant in the height of his power and amidst the terrors of his tyranny. Nothing, says Tacitus, mortified him so much. But when the monster was deposed, he incurred such sovereign scorn that he was doomed to be stripped naked and scourged to death like a slave with his head fastened in a pillory, his carcass to be cast afterwards from the Tarpeian rock, and with a hook in his nose to be dragged to the Tiber. Nor could the great reputation of Julius Caesar or that of Augustus and all their power secure them from popular insults and despite. The moicum calvum, and videsne ut cenidus orbem digito temperet, were contumelies which even their greatness could not escape. Mithridates, king of Armenia, when despoiled of his kingdom, experienced by the behaviour of his people how much they reverenced him they even assaulted him with reproaches and blows. When the Emperor Vitellius was led along to the slaughter, 
with his hands bound behind him, his habit all torn, and himself a filthy spectacle, he found much the like usage. Numbers wounded him with reproaches, but none was found to bewail him, and the populace railed at him when dead with the same baseness of heart with which they had flattered him lovingly. End of Discourse 7, Part 2